The goal of Impossible Foods, Inc. is to replace beef, pork, chicken, fish, and steak with foods that look, cook, taste, and smell just as good or better, but don't involve raising or slaughtering any animals. Pat Brown founded the company not to become the next billionaire, but because livestock are a disaster for the climate. We are not going to save ourselves from catastrophic climate change without replacing the animals in the food system. It just, you can't get there from here. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Season 1, Episode 15, How Impossible Meats Might Save the Earth. This is the last episode of Unsung Science, Season 1, And at this point, I haven't yet heard if there will be a second season. As soon as I find out, I'll let you know on Twitter and, of course, at unsungscience.com. But for now, thank you. You, dear listener, have made this project a thrilling ride. I've loved reading your reviews, your emails, tweets, your feedback, and finding out that you are just as fascinated by the backstories of great achievements as I am. Anyway, today's show is about one man's relentless battle against beef. Now, before you meet him, I'd just like to acknowledge how absurd that mission must seem. I mean, beef is America. Beef is a staple. If you're a typical American, you eat 55 pounds of it a year. If you go to a picnic or a cookout, you don't even ask if beef is on the menu. Of course it is. So the first question for my guest, then, is... So what's wrong with beef? (laughs) I could spend an entire hour going down the list because there's probably 10 things, any one of which is reason enough to replace it. This is Patrick Brown. As our story begins in 2009, he was a biochemistry professor at Stanford. Well, a biochemistry professor taking an 18-month sabbatical to contemplate the rest of his life. How he, as a single individual, could do the most good for the world. And the answer was... Replace meat. In general, the use of animals as food technology is by far the most destructive technology on Earth. And cattle are the biggest part of the problem, okay? From a climate perspective, 
and this is something I, I, I really want to get into if, you, if you're up for it. Meat production in general is responsible for 33% of global water consumption. In the U.S., um, there was a recent study that reported that more than half of the water that flows out of the Colorado River watershed is used to raise cattle. It's incredibly water-intensive. More important from a climate and biodiversity standpoint, it's incredibly land-intensive. Uh, animal agriculture occupies um, about 49% of the area of the continental U.S., okay? Almost half. Look it up. I did look it up. It's true. Half of the United States' land area is dedicated to raising meat. Globally, we've turned over one-third of all the non-frozen land on the planet to cattle grazing. I'll give that a few seconds to sink in. See, to make more land for cows, we generally tear down trees. And this is why they're burning down the rainforest. It's happening in real time. Absolutely, yeah. But Brown's beef with beef isn't just about how many resources cows require. The biggest problem is their burps. Cows are ruminant mammals, which means that microorganisms in their stomachs digest their food, breaking it down into the nutrients they need and the nasty greenhouse gases they don't. Buffalo, deer, elk, giraffes, and camels are also ruminants, but they're not nearly as much of a problem because we don't generally raise them to eat them. You can't go to McDonald's and order a McGiraffe. Anyway, those gases got to come out of the cow somehow. You hear people say that cow farts are the problem, which is hilarious, but not quite accurate. 95% of it is burps. A single cow burps up as much as five gallons of gas an hour. If you burped up five gallons an hour, you'd be asked to leave the restaurant or the relationship. Half of the upburped gases are methane, which is awful, awful stuff, many times worse than carbon dioxide. Our red meat creatures belch up more methane than the entire fossil fuel industry. If cattle were a country, they'd be the third biggest greenhouse gas polluter on the planet, right behind China and the United States. Put it all together, and meat animals pump out more greenhouse gases than cars, trucks, trains, buses, ships, airplanes, and rockets combined. A single cow isn't the problem. But 1.7 billion cows covering the planet is a problem, okay? 1.7 billion? That's the number. The total biomass of cows on Earth today exceeds by more than a factor of 10 the total combined biomass of every remaining mammal, bird, reptile, amphibian left on Earth, okay? Basically, we've replaced nature with cows, now, you will note that in this huge list of reasons that beef is a problem, we haven't even brought up the grisly subject of how cows become burgers. I considered playing a little sound clip right here of a cow being slaughtered, but, you know, kids listen to this podcast, too. If they had a clear picture of how beef is made, they'd never eat a hamburger again, and they'd also never sleep again. So if you're really interested in knowing how abattoirs work, that's the fancy word for slaughterhouses, off you go to YouTube. You ask your audiences, of all the reasons you love beef, raise your hand is if because it comes from the carcass of a slaughtered animal is one of the reasons. <laughs> Nobody raises their hands. You know, people love meat in spite of the way it's made. 
And they try very hard not to know where their meat comes from um, because it's just so unpleasant. Every abattoir on Earth, no matter how modern it is, is a horror show. I mean, we all kind of know that deep down. But who's got the nerve and the self-confidence to say, meat animals are a disaster, so let's fix it. This is the most urgent and important problem to solve in the world, full stop, okay? We are not going to save ourselves from catastrophic climate change without replacing animals in the food system. It just, you can't get there from here. But what stands in the way is satisfying the demand for this particular kind of food that incentivizes people to cover the planet with cows. The more he researched animal agriculture, the more upsetting it seemed. And before long... Well, it was goodbye, Stanford, hello, Impossible Foods, which he founded in 2011. Its modest goal was to create food that looks, tastes, smells, and handles like meat, but is made of plants using science. When I started the company, we put together an awesome R&D team. These are not people who came from the, the food industry. In the food industry, you know, the innovation of the year is a new flavor of Fruit Loops. And we do have people from the food industry who are very good at what they do. But for fundamental innovation, that, that just does not happen at General Mills. So I hired people who would otherwise have gone into academia or into the biomedical industry, pharmaceutical industry or whatever, um, who are basic scientists. Like three years in, we had uh, something like 80 R&D scientists and like three business people. We were purely an R&D operation devoted to the task of understanding how meat works and figuring out what ingredients that we can source from the, uh, effectively from the plant world or produced by fermentation are required to recreate that entire experience. You seem to have come into the problem saying, these problems are solvable, and they were. I just, I just don't know how you knew. I think a lot of scientists, if they had ch chosen to look at this problem, would have come to the same conclusion. This is a hard problem, but it's easier than a lot of biomedical research problems that you might want to study. Once you ask the question, it's answerable, okay? And the fact that we were able to find the answer basically says nobody had asked the question. Inside the labs, what is the process? What does it look like? Is it, is it people in lab coats with beakers? Is it, is it more like a kitchen? So we have a, a basic R&D lab that is building the knowledge that helps us understand what are the flavors and mechanical properties. That's the analytical part. There's the figuring out where we can source the raw materials that to, to precisely match the properties that we need, those ingredients. Then there's the engineering aspect of how we turn this into a scalable process and product. And then there's the sensory testing and cooking. We, we're iterating on all our products literally multiple times a day. We adjust this, we adjust that. We do analytical comparisons, but we also have sensory testers who are giving us feedback on whether it's going the right direction or not. So there is a kitchen aspect to it. I mean, when we were trying to make ground beef, one of our early taste tests, um, the, one of the tasters described the prototype as tasting like rancid polenta. And this is great. I love it because, because that's how it is in science. You know, like you get better and better and better by iterating and understanding what, okay, 
this is this is the next thing we need to solve. After five years of this taste testing and iteration, finally in 2016, the company was ready to ship its first product, the Impossible Burger. The Impossible Burger is not a veggie burger, which wouldn't fool anyone. It's not tofu. It's not that crumbly black bean stuff. Impossible Burgers look, cook, feel, smell, and taste astonishingly close to ground beef. Here's a chef guy on YouTube realizing that for himself. It cooks like meat, it feels like meat, and it tastes like meat, which, you know... As you cook them, these patties even bleed the way raw beef does. This is what's so crazy about these burgers. They're actually bleeding there. And then the browning is insane. It looks just like an actual burger. In a bun with condiments, they're nearly impossible to distinguish from a really great dead cow burger. Best burger I've ever had. Just a perfect combination. Doesn't taste 100% like ground beef, but it's very close, but it has its own feel. And to be honest, I actually like the the taste of it, the, the science behind this. It creates an incredibly flavorful product that really just holds up and tastes meaty. That is the most important thing. And yet, they are not meaty. They are meatless. The dominant ingredient is soy protein. And therefore, environmentally, their home runs. Our current ground beef product uses 125th the land area. It uses one-eighth the water. It uses less than a twelfth the fertilizer and agrochemicals that go into making a pound of beef. Overall, according to the package, producing an Impossible Burger spews out 89% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than raising a cow burger. By the way, a little moment of disclaimer here. I have zero connection to this company. I don't own any stock. I'd never met Pat Brown until I harangued his PR people for this interview, and they didn't pay anything to be the subject of this episode. Okay, okay, you got me. After the interview is over, they shipped me one box of their impossible chicken nuggets, clearly trying to buy me off. Anyway, back to the Impossible Burgers. They give you about the same amount of protein, iron, and calories as beef— much more fiber, because beef doesn't give you any, less fat, and no cholesterol, hormones, or antibiotics. They do contain much more sodium than beef, although, of course, people usually add salt to their beef themselves. What I don't understand about your trajectory is that you had this idea, oh, I'll invent a plant-based beef patty that you know tastes as good and has the same texture, smell, color, cooking characteristics— and then you did it. I mean, there, there have been many people who tried to make tasty plant burgers before you. I, I don't understand what gave you the, the confidence to think that you, this one guy, would pull it off. Well, first of all, what we set out to do was not to make a delicious plant-based burger. It was to build a technology platform that could replace livestock in the food system. Okay, that's a very, very different... So even bigger. It's kind of hard to explain, but, but sometimes with uh, scientific problems, it's easier to solve a bigger problem than a smaller problem. And in this case, what you have to do is think about what is the essential value proposition of, of livestock as a technology. Basically, what they do is they, they convert cheap, abundant plant biomass into these nutrient-dense foods with a very specific kind of deliciousness that people are very habituated to and, and have learned to love. And when you frame it that way, 
And you say, the job here is not, I'm going to create this little one-off product, but to replace that technology. Then you have to step back and understand, okay, how in actionable biochemical terms does it produce foods that have these attributes that people love, okay? A lot of the way that works in terms of, you know, meat texture and flavor, it's pretty similar across species and different form factors of meat and so forth. Basically, all the animals, if you looked at their tissues under a microscope or, or even under an electron microscope, you'd have a hard time telling one species from another, okay? And so we sort of set out at the beginning basically saying that we're not going to just start slapping a bunch of ingredients together and mixing flavors in and hoping for luck. We're going to understand how meat works as a biochemical system. Are you saying that there is no point during that four or five year development period when you wondered if you would get there? No. No. I mean, I've never doubted our success. I went into this basically from, look, it's on us. When the Impossible Burger was first introduced, the company could make only small batches, so you could only get them at a few high-end restaurants. They weren't available in grocery stores until 2019, which is also when Burger King started offering the Impossible Whopper. I mean, beef is something that a beef eater knows intimately, and you have to nail the looks, the texture, the flavor, the smell, how it cooks, how it handles. We knew that we could not just use conventional food science the way, you know, people in the past have tried to make meat replacements. We had to approach it as a hard scientific problem, a hard but solvable scientific problem, okay? You can break down the problem into solvable pieces. For example, how do you make a plant-derived burger get that slightly crisp exterior when you sear it? Well, they discovered that potato protein can deliver that effect. What about the sizzle of melting fat in the pan? Little flecks of semi-dried coconut oil could simulate that because it melts at about the same temperature as cow fat. A lot of the fatty mouthfeel that people get from animal fat sort of depends on the fact that it has a relatively flat melting profile that is sort of centered around your body temperature. One meaty characteristic at a time. Those were Pat Brown's solvable pieces. The hard part is deliciousness. Nutrition, cost, those are, those are a piece of cake. It's producing the constellation of sensory properties that, that matter to consumers. And it's a constellation, but it's finite. The hard part is deliciousness. So how do you solve a problem like deliciousness? What plant-based ingredient can give you the delicious flavor of beef? It was clear that there would be no impossible burger until the company could find a solution. What is it that makes meat taste categorically different from anything in the plant world? If you give someone who, who, who is a meat eater some morsel of food and ask them to identify it on flavor alone, even, even just from the aroma, they could pretty much consistently do it irrespective of what kind of meat it is. Incredibly, he discovered the answer. Feeling sufficiently teased? Then stay tuned, because after the ads, I'll tell you about it. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now a word from me. Maybe you're liberal. Maybe you're conservative. Maybe you think the climate crisis is man-made. Maybe you think the whole thing is a Chinese hoax. Guess what? It doesn't matter. The world has gotten hotter, natural systems are going haywire, and you should begin to prepare. Thus begins the world's only book that tells you how to prepare. And I wrote it. It's called How to Prepare for Climate Change. It's a practical guide to adaptation steps that you can take for your own benefit, your families, and your homes. It's about where to live, how to invest, what to eat, how to build, what insurance you need, how to talk to your kids. It's also about preparing for the extremes that are coming soon to weather near you. Floods, fires, heat waves, droughts, superstorms, water shortages, power failures, and social disruption. How to Prepare for Climate Change, the ultimate field guide for our new climate. Okay, enough ads. Welcome back. Before the break, I was telling you about how Pat Brown's army of scientists created the Impossible Burger one characteristic at a time. And I was hinting at this one miracle ingredient that almost single-handedly provides the color, the flavor, and the deliciousness of beef. It's the ingredient that made Pat Brown's dream a reality. And that one incredible ingredient turned out to be love. No, I'm totally kidding. It's a molecule called heme. A lot of the flavor, there's more to it, but 90% of it plus, is that animal tissues contain this molecule, abundant amount of this molecule, heme. That's H-E-M-E. Pat Brown's team gets its heme from a protein called soy leg hemoglobin, which is short for legume hemoglobin. Heme may be better known as the molecule that built impossible foods. If I worked at the company, I'd have made a t-shirt for Pat Brown to wear that says He-Man. Get it? He-Man? Anyway, here's the company's principal scientist, Rachel Fraser, in a company video. We were the first to discover that heme is what makes meat taste like meat. It's highly abundant in animal muscle tissue, and if you were to eat meat raw, that bloody flavor that you get, that's heme. 
And when you cook meat, with all the different flavors and aromas that you get, that is catalyzed by heme as well. Heme is not some exotic chemical. It's around. Heme is required for every cell on Earth. It's, it's, it's required for life on Earth. And it does a whole bunch of different things. It's um, what carries oxygen in your blood. It's what stores oxygen in your muscle tissue. And it's also a, one of the best catalysts in nature. So the enzymes in your body that uh, metabolize caffeine use heme as sort of the catalytic element. And the enzymes in your body that make estrogen and testosterone also use heme as, uh, as a catalytic element. Animals need much more heme because they use it as an oxygen uh, transport and storage system in a way. And so that's why meat is red or pink. And, you know, that's why your lips are pink and your skin is, you know, uh, rosy and all that sort of stuff, um, because you have so much heme. Okay. In meat, heme gives the meat its color, which is something that people value in meat. So if you basically took a drop of, of a heme protein and, and put it into a bowl of vegetable broth, it would basically smell and taste like beef broth, okay? It's, it's, that's kind of the switch between plants and animals. And that's why there's such a huge difference between cooking vegetables and cooking meaty, meaty meat. You know, when you cook broccoli, basically it gets warmer and mushier and maybe caramelizes a bit or something like that, but nothing magical happens. When you cook meat, you basically unlock an explosion of chemistry, right? You get this explosion of aroma and flavor that it completely transforms in its flavor profile, producing much more intense and new flavors in that process. Heme made the Impossible Burger possible. Pat Brown's army of scientists had done it. They'd managed to create a burger that really tasted amazing. The Impossible Burger was an instant hit. So was its arch-rival, the Beyond Burger. Today, they're both selling incredibly well in stores and restaurants, especially since the start of the pandemic, when virus outbreaks tore through the meat industry, sickening and killing workers, closing meat-packing plants, and raising prices. Overall, sales of plant-based meats and milks exploded 27% last year alone, we are now buying $7 billion worth of plant-based animal substitutes a year, a number that's supposed to more than triple in the next two years. No wonder Nestle, Tyson, ConAgra, Kellogg, Hormel, and Kroger have all introduced their own meatless burgers, or will shortly. Elon Musk is famous for saying, I don't care if Tesla goes out of business. The whole point is to jumpstart electric cars. As long as electric cars takes over, I don't care what happens to us. Are you in that vein? Like, as long as we stop harvesting animals for meat, I don't care about my company in particular. I have a responsibility to the people of my company who have been busting their butts. And so I do care if my company comes under... But um, on the other hand, if other people are coming into the same technology and uh, doing things better than we do, I feel like, well, they deserve their success. And I'm not interested in competing with them. I seriously am not interested in competing with them from a mission standpoint. I mean, I, at, at some point, I think we're going to want to be, you know, collaborating with a lot of, of other companies and people and so forth to accelerate this mission. Now, it probably comes as very little surprise to learn that the meat industry hates, hates, hates the idea of plant-based meats, despises their popularity. Meat makers have gone to the remarkably expensive extreme of running a Super Bowl ad in 2020 
to try to turn people off of plant-based meat, like Impossible Burgers. The ad is set at a school spelling bee. Spell propylene glycol. What's that? Propylene glycol. It's a chemical used in antifreeze and synthetic meats. P-O... You might need a PhD to understand what's in synthetic meat. Just how nasty is that ad? Well, for one thing, it contains a triple scoop of misinformation. Propylene glycol is FDA certified as safe for use in food, and it's in thousands of baked goods, prepared foods, candies, frostings, sauces, dressings, and so on. It is not antifreeze of the type that you'd put in your car. That's ethylene glycol. And here's the kicker. There's no propylene glycol in the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger. Pat Brown was not about to get kicked around by the dead animal lobby. Impossible Foods made an ad of its own, a parody of the Spelling Bee ad, and he himself played the role of the judge. And our first word is poop. There's lots of poop in the places where pigs and cows and chickens are killed and chopped to bits to make meat. And there's poop in the ground beef we make from cows. The meat lobby also hammers hard on the fact that Impossible Burgers are made from ingredients that have been processed, extracted from plants, fermented, mixed, and so on. Also, the company needed some way to get enough heme to make its meat in the quantities we demand. So it trained yeast to make that heme. They inserted DNA from soy heme into the yeast, which then ferments much the way we ferment yeast to make beer. And that, my friends, is a form of genetic modification. (gasps) We're not going to have time for a whole big thing on genetically modified food, but here's the crash course. Basically, we've been genetically modifying crops for hundreds of thousands of years. When we selectively breed crops to get bigger bananas or juicier apples or whatever, that is super slow, crude genetic modification. The newer kind, where we make tiny tweaks by directly editing a crop's genes, has been deemed safe by the FDA, the American Medical Association, the National Academy of Sciences, and the World Health Organization. Today, 90% of all soy and corn in the U.S. are genetically modified varieties. You've been eating them for decades. Still, I had to ask Pat Brown about this processed food business. It sounds like you've manipulated individual factors and ingredients and the way you prepare them. And we've been taught over the last 40 years that processed is a bad word in food. Do do you get any reluctance from people saying, oh, it's so processed? That comes up a lot. It's like one of these terms that is used as a pejorative. And and there have been, I think the meat industry is really pouring the fuel on that, putting on ads in the Wall Street Journal saying, oh, plant-based meats are processed, blah, 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 blah. First of all, I think someone should look at their process on time, which they won't let you do. Um, And uh, look at what goes into their products, including fecal bacteria. Poop. P-O-O-P, poop. But setting that aside, every food is processed. If you make a a loaf of sourdough bread, you don't just take a pile of wheat and, and there's your loaf of bread. There's a whole history of figuring out all the things you have to do to make that great. Separating the wheat from the chaff, you know. You have to 
You have to grind it. You have to mix it with yeast and cultures to get it to rise. You have to knead it. You have to apply shear stress and mechanical stress to it to get the dough to have the elastic texture. Then you have to bake it. And then maybe you put olive oil on it. Well, wait. If even the healthiest kinds of foods are processed, like chopped, mixed, heated, dried, and fermented, then where do we get this idea that processing our food is bad? Brown says that processing the ingredients and substituting cheap and gross ingredients are two different things. The big food industry has done a tremendous disservice to consumers and to society. It's about minimizing their costs and maximizing their profits at the expense of the consumer's health. Taking, you know, addictive and cheap ingredients like sugar and fats and salt and stuff like that, and creating foods that have essentially no valuable nutrients in them and have more or less a purely negative health impact in service to the business and, and with no regard for consumers, okay? That's that kind of processed foods. That's a Twinkie. Processed foods like Twinkies and junk food, Pepsi-Cola, are completely irrelevant to what we're doing. We're incredibly conscientious about health. We have to make a product that's healthier than what it replaces in order to win in the market. You also must have to think about culture and psychology. In other words, meat is more than tasty and filling and protein. It's also, you know, the American way. It's, it's embedded in our history and our Fourth of Julys and so on. I mean, is, is, there, is that a challenge to you? No, it, I, it's not a challenge. These kinds of cultural traditions are less sticky than people think. I mean, you could have said horses are embedded in, in American tradition 150 years ago, and they were even more personal than, than the cow because pretty much every household had a horse. But actually, it turned out that what mostly mattered to people was it got them from point A to point B, not that it had four legs and a tail. And that became obvious as soon as a better technology came along and did a better job of serving what consumers valued from that horse. Here's another interesting factoid that I just dug up recently, but I find it amusing, um, that the most popular meat in the U.S. Uh, a little over 100 years ago was mutton, okay? What? Good luck <laughs> finding mutton in any supermarket now. These things are not as sticky as people think. For those of you who weren't doing the shopping in 1910, mutton is the meat of adult sheep. You don't have to change any of those traditions, right? You just go to the grocery store, you buy your ground beef or, or steak or whatever. It doesn't happen to be made from an animal, and you just go right about your business. About the only real drawback Pat will concede is that Impossible Burgers still cost more than beef burgers. The company has been steadily bringing the price down by 15% in 2020 and another 20% in 2021, but at this moment, Impossible Burgers at Walmart cost $5 for two six-ounce patties. That comes out to $10 a pound, about twice as pricey as 80% lean ground beef from the same store. How close are we to the price now? In some ways, we're almost already there, okay? All the costs that underlie the cost of beef in a supermarket are lower for us at scale. So we need less plant crops. We need less labor managing the plant crops, no labor managing the animals. And our production process is way more labor efficient than a slaughterhouse, which basically has to take this very badly designed starting material to turn into meat. And you need a bunch of exploited, low-paid workers with large knives 
to turn it into a product that someone will buy. And we design the whole thing. So we, we can design it to be simple and automatable. If it weren't for the fact that we have the inefficiencies of small scale, like we, we have to ship small shipments of our products to 30,000 grocery stores. We don't have the mature distribution system of the existing industry, for example. And right now, we're still a very small startup and we're pouring money into growing our supply chain and our production stuff. We're building it from scratch as opposed to basically living off the legacy that um, the incumbent industry has. And yet, we're getting very close to the crossing point in terms of costs. I'd say within a few years max, I mean, maybe three years, but it won't be long at all. It's going to be a very interesting point when we have products that are outperforming, they're healthier, they're, they're delicious, um, and they're cheaper. Already, this little startup has other products. The chicken nuggets, have you tried the chicken nuggets? Are they out there? Yes, they're out there. And they, in our tests, were preferred by 75% of consumers over the best-selling animal-based chicken nuggets, America's Test Kitchen. Compare them to a bunch of other nuggets, including nuggets made from chicken, and they not only were the winner, but they described them as tasting more like chicken than the chicken nuggets. Wait, what? That can't be right. How could anything taste more like chicken than chicken? I found the America's Test Kitchen article. It says, and I quote, The impossible nuggets were moist and plump. They were also surprisingly flavorful and tasted more like chicken than the other nuggets. They're also selling impossible sausage, meatballs, and pork. But in some ways, I couldn't help wondering, why go to such great lengths to simulate meats we already know? Isn't that sort of conceding defeat? Isn't that saying... Well, we can't possibly get you to eat healthy, sustainable food, so we'll create something that tastes as close as possible to the unhealthy and unsustainable stuff? We could have said, no, we're not going to make anything that tastes like any of those animals, but we'll make something that tastes like an animal you've never experienced before or whatever. And that would be a lot, that would be fun and interesting from a kind of artistic perspective, you might say, or even a scientific perspective. But we have a mission here, and it is to remove the economic incentive that keeps this industry basically driving us toward environmental catastrophe. And that's why we are strategically focusing on um, specific products that are the economic pillars of the um, business of each of those livestock species. Yes, Pat Brown has a mission, a whopping big one, to replace animals with food technology by 2035. He said that so many times, it almost comes out as one big word. Replace animals with food technology by 2035. That mission statement might sound like someone biting off more than he can chew. But it's never wise to bet against Pat Brown. He never had a moment of doubt that he'd master the burger, and then the sausage, and then the chicken. So why should we doubt that he can go all the way by 2035? He doesn't. I'm 100% confident we'll achieve it. Unsung Science with David Pogue is presented by Simon & Schuster and CBS News and produced by PRX Productions. The executive producers for Simon & Schuster are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. 
The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and Ian Fox, project manager. Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music, and Christina Ribello fact-checked my script. At unsungscience.com, you can listen to every episode we've ever made and read complete transcripts. For more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter, at Pogue, P-O-G-U-E. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.